On today's episode, I have uh, the w- wonderfully talented Eric Hahn. Uh, <laughs> he's he's catching his breath right now. I made him I made him hustle up three flights of stairs, and then uh, jumped him right into the podcast. How are we feeling over there, Eric? I'm feeling good, man. You feel great? Yeah. Um, now we were just having a discussion. First of all, Eric Hahn is a comedian. And uh, a guy who I've known. How long have I known you? Oh my gosh! Since I started in, uh, since I started ten years ago. Can you hear me? Because I can't hear you. Yeah, yeah. You won't be able to hear me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, You started ten years ago. I'm in my tenth year, and I think I met you year one, right? How long have you been in comedy? (sighs) Twenty years. No. Yes, sir. Twenty years. That's why I'm so much funnier. God. So, yeah, you don't have to feel as bad. 20 years. Well, that makes me feel good. No, <laughs> I thought we started around the same time. Nah, I, no, no, that hurts my feelings now. Yeah. Why? But, no, but you know what? It's true because, uh, not true, but 10 years in, you feel like you're just getting your wheels under you. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it feels like day one because you realize the stuff that you've been doing for the last 10 years, have, have you've been doing it wrong. And so there's this, when I first started stand-up, I was, uh, I was doing uh, one-liners. I was like, hey, so my girlfriend said she needed more space, so I pushed her out the car. I was doing stuff like <laughs> that, and then uh, I went through a Def Jam era where I was like, black people do this, right? And then, um, uh, and then what, I went through a third phase, I can't remember. And now, 20 years in, I think I'm just finding my voice where uh, I've always felt like you've had your voice mm. from day one. I, I, there's, some, there's some comics, and those are the ones who rise the fastest, um, are the ones who, like Amy Schumer, people s- talk trash about her, but uh, she had her voice early on. You hear me closing the sliding door. Uh, but uh, the look on your face tells me that uh, you do not feel the same. I, you know, it's funny because I think that uh, a major focus in my comedy, of course, is my, you know, me being gay, mm-hmm. and um, so I think that that that's a pretty personal thing for me because I'm an older person and I started comedy when I was in my 40s, so I really felt like. A lot of the things that I was talking about were things that I always kind of kept t- private or only shared with like close friends, you know. And uh, so it was quite uh, quite a different exercise for me to get up on stage and talk about things. And it still is. I'm, you know, I'm the kind of person where I feel like I love to be around people and I love to share as much as I can with people. And uh, but I also feel that I'm very very private. So there's always that that uh, juxtaposition of those two things that are always fighting with each other, you know. And sometimes I'll do a set on stage, and then I get off stage, and now I'm I'm back in real life, and I'm surrounded by the people that just heard me talking about all these things, and I just feel like no one wants to shake my hand, and everyone no one's looking me in the eye, and. And so that's really hard to get used to. I'm still trying to wrestle with that a little bit. But it's, I, it's not going to stop me. It's certainly not going to stop me. I feel like 
there's still a lot that I haven't tapped into um, on stage. Um, I want to put a pin in that. There's a lot that you haven't tapped into. Uh, I just went to go see Common, the rapper, mm-hmm. and um, he just uh, he, he's releasing a new video and a new album and also a new book. And one of the things he said, because I was feeling the same way you felt, Eric, in that here I am on stage, I'm talking about gun control, I'm talking about uh, abortion and uh, political stuff, stuff that I don't talk about, and uh, you know, also obviously suicide, stuff that I don't talk about in real life, in my, in my day-to-day. I, I, I could care less about getting into an argument over politics or immigration, whatever. But on stage, I, I want to talk about it. And I always felt like an imposter. And um, Common said that the rap for him became a vehicle for him to talk about the things that he otherwise would not talk about with his friends. Mm. It's, a, it's a way for him to speak truth to power, right? And, and it made me feel more comfortable because I realized a lot of artists create art for that reason it's like yeah i don't want to talk to you but i do feel a need to express my views and opinion in a creative way but not in a combative way which is what happens when you talk to people about uh gay rights or gun control or immigration it's like i don't want to get in an argument about it but i I, there is a need for expression right for sure and I feel that that giving us a voice, giving us time on stage as comedians, I don't think I'll ever, ever take that lightly. I feel like that's a huge privilege to me. If I get 10 minutes on a show, then all day long I can think, you know, no matter what, I got 10 minutes tonight to get up in front of people. And they're, for the most part, they're going to listen to me. And that's a, a blessing. And it's and such a, an amazing thing, and I'll never, ever take that for granted. And I've seen other comics start to take that for granted, and I feel like they lose a little bit of joy that comes with this job. Wow. You know? Yeah. Because they're kind of looking at it as like, oh, okay, well, I'm just doing this to, just to get to, I'm doing this from A to get to point B, to get to point C, to get to point B. No, right, you're just, you're sharing your insides with people. That's what you're doing. And that's, that's not something that everybody gets a chance to do. You're right. I, I, when I look at, um, you know, construction workers or people who have, like, they work two jobs to put food on a table, and but they have this talent, right, where they like to draw or paint or sing, whatever it is, but they, they got to keep the lights on. They got to take care of their kids. They uh, They... You know, their, their parents said, you're going to get a, an education. No no child of mine is going to be an actor or an artist or, uh, you know, an athlete, whatever that is. And, 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 you, and I feel I have, I have so many friends who are extremely talented, but um, they don't feel safe enough to pursue it. And so they have these nine to five jobs that then are killing them. Literally, right? Um, and, it, and so it's a sad thing. So going back to what you were saying about 
being on stage is a way to to share your insides and and you said that there were more things that you you want to share well like what are those things that that you haven't gotten into um well i think a lot of um a lot of my childhood i'd really want to explore because i feel like um, i was raised in a very scary environment and i lived with a man who uh, my dad who it felt like 24 7 he was on the lookout for ways to kind of provoke me tease me belittle me abuse me and uh, so I developed all of these uh, survival mechanisms these little quirks and whatnot to really get me through all of that uh, as a kid and then of course what happens is is when you have all these habits uh, and you carry them with you into adulthood, you find that these will become stumbling blocks because you can't, you can't hide in your life. You can't, you know, I, I'm constantly wanting to like be the center of attention and also hide at the same time. Uh, make everybody laugh, but don't, don't say anything. Like there's just constant duality to me. And, uh, and so I really want to kind of explore all of that and and try to kind of make sense of it and make it funny. Um, I'm very afraid to go into it on stage because people, when you talk about alcoholism or even alcohol, just alcohol, there's always a weirdness with it. There's always, no matter what, when you bring up alcohol with somebody, there's always like a little like, it's either maybe their they're unsure of where their drinking comes from or maybe they're someone important to them that they love as an alcoholic but they don't want to really deal with it you know or when you tell people you don't drink there's always like well why don't you drink and why everybody drinks well no there's quite a lot of people that don't drink you know and so when you're bringing up these these issues or child abuse on stage uh it really means something different to pretty much everybody out in the audience and so you're not you know, it's easier for me to just do dick jokes, <laughs> you know, because I know that, that that'll, there'll be more of a universal response to that rather than, hey, when I was 10, my dad beat the shit out of me. You know what I mean? Well, plus, it, you know, in a comedy club, people are drinking and nobody wants to feel self-conscious about the thing that they're doing at the exact moment that you're talking about it. Right. And uh and then there's also, the, you know, it's like, you're like, you know, my dad was an alcoholic, you know, I, I drank, I, I quit drinking. And that guy's trying to quit drinking, but then, you know, the server's like, we got a two-drink minimum. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <You> yeah. <know? laughs> drink up. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough, because I, I've experienced that, um, well, because my dad drank also. And uh, we all want to get into what we were talking about earlier on, on before the podcast, but um, but also with food, you know, because I I came from a, a background where it was eat as much as you can while you can, and because uh, we don't because we don't want you to be hungry later. It was just fear mongering, and so I have those habits uh, that I've developed. But it's a tough thing to talk about on stage because people are also eating and they're eating nine times out of 10 
the unhealthiest foods. So now I'm on stage talking about eating healthy, and they got nachos and hot dogs and onion rings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in order in seconds, you know. <laughs> this is definitely a, a, a challenging thing. Earlier before the podcast, uh, you were talking about when you're raised with an, an alcoholic father, um, can you just talk about that? Like w- what that creates in an adult? I forgot what we, what we, what we said that, that develops. One of the characteristics of, uh, of a child of an alcoholic is, uh, is making big messes uh, and then uh, spending an inordinate amount of time cleaning up the messes. And these, this could be actual, an actual physical mess, or it could also be metaphorically things in your mind or relationships, creating these, uh, these really messy situations and then diving into them and feeling good about the fact that, hey, I'm, I made this mess, but I'm also going to clean it up. And so it's this way of controlling chaos in a way. And I feel like you can do that for so long and then you just get tired of the cleaning up part of the whole process <laughs> and you continually make messes and then leave them behind. And I've, I've done that in relationships. I've done that with jobs. Uh, I've done that certainly in my finances, certainly with my finances. And I've done that with my physical space that I've lived in. Um, I've lived in squalor when, I, when it didn't need to be squalor. And the, I've lived in completely spotless, uh, beautiful spaces that I take a lot of effort into keeping that way. So there's this kind of like, again, it's that, it's that duality. But I, I think it, what it boils down to is it boils down to knowing what you can control and what you can't control. And as a kid, when you grow up in an uh, alcoholic home, everything that you can stay on top of is in your arsenal because y- you, c- you control every possible thing you can because you know that there's a chance that, hey, my dad's going to come home drunk. He's going to pull me out of bed. We're going to have a big scene. You know, he's going to scream at me, blah, blah, blah. And so in order to cope with that, you kind of, you, you create messes and you clean them up. Can you give me an example of how you created a mess in your relationships? Uh, sure. Uh, a good example would be uh, when I first moved to California about 13 years ago, I met somebody and uh, I was living in Santa Barbara at the time. He was in L.A. And I knew right away that it was not going to be a healthy collusion. Collusion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, the fact that you called it collusion tells me that th- this is nothing we needs to be... Uh <laughs> yeah, it sounds so romantic, right? Oh, God. And that's exactly what it was, just a collusion, because, you know, I'm, I'm in my... F- I was 40... I was nearing 40... Uh, I had left the East Coast after living there for 15 years. California was such a foreign, different place. I was in cultural shock from being on the West Coast. And so when I met him, I, uh, you know, and I I learned that he was from Boston, where I had just moved from. Mm -hmm. I clung to that because I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, 
he's got the accent and he's got he knows all the spaces that I've been to and he you know so it was like a, a little piece of home and uh and it was I I had a big physical attraction to him mm -hmm. and um but I knew going in I'm like this is going to be this is going to be a huge mess uh, because he was uh, a severe gambling addict. He was addicted to gambling and uh, to the point where he, would, uh, he wouldn't even leave uh, blackjack tables. He would wear adult diapers and pee on himself sitting there. Hold on. Yeah. Yeah. People do this? Oh, yeah. They wear diapers. So they don't. So they don't have to get up and leave and break that because in their head they're like, "I'm on a roll. I'm not going to leave it. I'm sitting here." He'll he'll he sat he'll sit at a table for 23 hours. They'll just keep bringing food and drink, and he's just peeing on himself. Do professional poker players do this? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Come on. Oh yeah. Because those those are your addicts. Those are the ones who are addicted to gambling. When they make, when it's their living and their career, most of them are gambling addicts. I had, I always wondered, because I remember I was doing the show, I, I do Vegas a lot. Actually, I'll be at the Vegas Comedy Cellar July 1st through the 7th. Um, and, um, but I remember going to a show, and the show started at 6. We had two shows that night. And I didn't leave the club until maybe around midnight that night coming back. And I saw people and I was like, I don't, I remember those people walking in. I don't think they left. And I'm like, how is that possible? Now when I look at people, I'm like, are they wearing a diaper? <laughs> Come on. They How long were you guys together? We were together for about the better part of almost two years. All right. So listen. If somebody can be with somebody who wears diapers, then there's a love for anybody out there. Do you understand? What mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> there is hope for everybody, right? Because how old was he? He was about five years younger than I was. So when I met him, he was, I think he was like 34, 35. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And what's more. Uh-oh. There's more? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. It gets crazier. <laughs> Because uh, this is just goes to show you how naive I am. Uh, we went out the first couple times, and uh, you know everything was going great. And then one date we had, he uh, he says, "Hey, I got something to tell you." And I thought, "Oh, what could this be?" And he pulls out his left hand, and all of his fingers on his left hand, except his pinky, are gone. Like it's just a stub with a pinky sticking out. And I went, when did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I didn't even, like, I didn't even notice that he was missing all his fingers. Come on. Didn't even notice Come. because he was so good at hiding it. And he also had, like, a fake hand that he used to wear. So you guys never held hands? I mean, no, even we in didn't. four, nothing? No. He had, he had hid it from me. He had hid it from me. Come on. Yeah. And I was I was also obsessed with other body parts he had, <laughs> which were pretty major. No, 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 no. But no, I did no. not notice no, that he man. was missing. And I said, "What happened?" And he goes, "He told me this story that I just believed, hook, line, and sinker." 
about his when he was a little kid and some crazy guy that worked for his parents shoved his hand down a meat grinder and he, that's that's how it happened and i remember questioning him going well did your parents press charges against this guy did this guy get go to jail did, and he was very he he didn't give me a lot of details he's like oh my parents considered it bad luck to pursue that legally cuz cuz he he was uh he was an asian guy so he was giving me all this like my parents don't you know like I believed him, but it was only years later I realized that he it was probably gambling debts because he used to borrow money from loan sharks and whatnot. And I think that they chopped his fingers off. This is something that I, in a movie, I was like, surely this only happens in movies. They're not taking some dude down to the basement of the of the Rio or the Cosmo and chopping off fingers, but apparently they are. Apparently there's a room. I'm for sure. Even though him and I no longer speak, and I haven't seen him now for probably a year and a half. Oh, he's missing an arm. Oh, hey, <laughs> he's <my> missing. He's <laughs> yeah. He's missing an arm for sure. <laughs> Stumpy. <laughs> oh man. Isn't that absurd? It's absurd. To think you're losing parts of your body. Yeah. And he still grapples with it. He stole money off me. He stole yeah. money out of my bank account. He stole, you know, physical money out of my wallet. I mean, it, it was it was very hard to break it off with him because when I was trying to break up with him, he would cry and he'd be like, don't leave me. I can't live without you. What are you doing? Please stay with me. And I just had to, I, I we went through that for the better part of six months. It wow. took me to, to, yeah. to clear the boards with him. How, how did you do that? Because a lot of people are, because I've been in relationships where I tried to, and it's hard especially if you've been together for almost two years. It's hard to break up, uh, whether it's good or bad, right? And so what? how did you just move out? Did he, did he come home and there was a Jer Dear John letter? Like what was, how did you how did you get out of there? I, I wish I could say that I just strong-armed and said, <laughs> I'm leaving, you know, but I didn't. Like I, I kind of walked the line of like, Oh, maybe we're together. Maybe we're not together. Maybe we're friends. Maybe we're lovers. Maybe we're, you know, because I, because there was part of me that wanted to stay with him yeah. because I, I kind of loved him in a sick way, you know, of and course. I, right, I, I, I still loved the physical connection that we had. And, uh, so I, I moved out, I got my own apartment, but we still continued to kind of see each other, uh, you know, kind of not romantically, but just kind of like maintenance wise, just gotcha. to get together and have sex. <laughs> maintenance wise. Yeah. <laughs> not romantically, but maintenance wise. Yeah, you know, you're two men. You gotta, you gotta look after these things. <laughs> and so finally, with having that, uh, it was once I found stand up comedy mm. that he, he, I think he got so jealous of the fact that I was pursuing what I wanted to do and he didn't really have the wherewithal to do that because he, he had always wanted to be an actor. He had, that's why he moved out here. Uh, but he never, he was too afraid to pursue it. He got, he would get headshots every year and then not go, not do 
anything acting-wise, not, mm. not take a class, nothing. And I would always push him. I'd be like, do you want to be an actor? And he would say yes. And I'm like, you don't want to be an actor. Mm. What did you do this morning for it? What did you do today? What do you, what's your plan for tomorrow? Like I pushed him. Yeah. I even bought him for Christmas once or his birthday. I bought him a, a, a acting class, you know, like a whole series of it. Yeah. You know, I spent like 400 bucks or something on it. And here he was going two nights a week saying that he was going to the class, but he he cashed that in, got yeah. that money and gambled it wow. and would just go and hang out somewhere. And then when he would come back, I'd be like, how was the class? And he would just be like, oh, it was fine, you know, just kind of lie to me. Yeah. And so when I started doing comedy, I was very enthusiastic and I was very assertive and aggressive, and I, I still am. You know, I'm constantly looking for opportunities to get up in front of people and do my jokes. Right. That really threatened him and I think that that made it easier for me to finally break free of him because I don't think he really wanted to be around that as a reminder of what he wasn't pursuing I want to I want to um, I want to tag two things that you said one is you know he, he said he wanted to be an actor and you asked him what did you do today what do you have planned for tomorrow um, and, you know, what's your strategy for, for you know, pursuing this? And, and it's something that I, I want to put a pin in for myself. And also I want the listeners to put a pin in because uh, so many times we say we want to do something and we don't take any action steps. We don't have a plan. We, we, we go through the entire day and we've done nothing, not even one thing. We haven't made a phone call. We haven't sent an email. We haven't um, uh, wrote a line, anything. We haven't acted, read a script, anything. Uh, got a bank loan, asked for money, asked for help, right? Um, and, and, and have no plan for tomorrow of how we're going to build on today. So uh, for the listeners out there, if, you, if there's something that you want to do and, and that you, you say you're passionate about, I, I, stop the podcast right now. I don't care. And and write down and figure out, have you done something today to pursue that? To What was the action step? Baby step. Nothing big. Something tiny. And then what's your plan for tomorrow? Because we want to build on what we've done today. Um, but the other thing that you said that I thought was very valuable was uh, the that the fact that Sometimes uh, we s we're so focused on trying to leave something like a relationship, right, or um, trying to lose weight. We're so focused on the diet, the food, or uh, the person that really what we need is something stronger to pull us away from it instead of us breaking away from it. Sometimes it's about finding something to pull you away from it, right? That's just as valuable. Uh, the noise that you hear, the, the dogs have returned from the dog walker. I appreciate you, brother. Um, I'm going to pause the podcast for two seconds. And, oh, oh, and we're back. Uh, dogs are settled in. But, uh, but yeah, the, you know, it's uh, 
it's about finding something with a higher purpose. Like I, I know for me, uh, you know, I've battled with weight loss for a long time. Uh, you know, having played football, I was like 275 and I was so focused on food. But also, but there's a point where I realized like when th- I was involved in projects that I really cared about, I wasn't thinking about food. When, I'm, when, I'm was, when I was working on my book, working on scripts, like I'm, I, like you get so into the work and you're traveling, you know, it's just, uh, uh, you just find, sometimes you just have those days where you got so much going on where food is, uh, you know, n- not even on your mind. You, mm-hmm. You're just going. Um, so that, that's very valuable in, in, in terms of, you, it's great that you found stand-up to pull you out of that and um, but my, my question to you is being the father, uh, the father, the son of an alcoholic, you had an alcoholic father. Um, did you struggle with drinking also or oh drugs? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I went to rehab when I was 25. I got sober. And uh, so I got I've been sober now for 26 years. 26. Mm-hmm. Did you go to AA? I did. I went to AA really religiously the first five years, and then from year five to ten, I kind of tapered off. And then after ten years, I I was I was no longer going. But now, once in a while, I go to a meeting just to, you know, for some touch-ups. <laughs> Touch-up maintenance, yes, so to speak. That's the theme. The 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 um the AA meetings. I I know so many comics who who've gone to AA. Who now there's some who've gone gotten sober and then stopped going and they're still fine and then there's some who can g- have gone went through the 12 steps and go every week and is you know f- and they've been doing it for 20 years some of my friends do that they've been sober for like 20 30 years but they still go to the meetings they every week they don't take any chances no matter what city they're in and then there's some like you who have gone through the steps and then just go every now and again for the touch-ups. What what's bringing you back for the touch-ups? Um, I think a yearning for fellowship, uh, a, a, a yearning to be around people that kind of understand what it's like to live your life as a recovering alcoholic. Um, also, living in LA, I want to be around gay men that are my age. So if I go to a gay AA meeting, I'm for sure going to run into guys primarily in their 40s and 50s whereas any other social setting I'm constantly surrounded by 20 year old people which is fine I can I can hang but I also I don't want to be the old guy you know <laughs> hanging out with a bunch of like 25 year olds and uh, sometimes that that that, that gets really close to happening and and I want to be around I want to be around uh, you know people that Watch Three's Company in the 80s. You know what I mean? Right, like, I want right. people that, that can kind of get all my humor and, and people that have been around as long as I have. So all of those things lead me to, to go back to AA. But I think the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous is that it works It works for all the spectrum of the people that you said. You know, it, it works for the people that go religiously every day. Uh, but it also works for people that kind of dip in and dip out. You know, it's 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 a beautiful program that teaches you how to live your life, not necessarily how to stay away from a drink. 
um, growing now, when you said you you drank, what age did you start drinking? When I was twelve. You started drinking when you were twelve. Yeah. What you remember your first drink? Oh yeah, Colt Forty Five. Do they even still make Colt Forty Five? I don't. I haven't a seen the commercial. I remember Billy D. Williams was doing <gasps> Colt Forty Five. Loved him. <laughs> God, I wanted oh. to see him naked. My mom, same thing. Every time he came on television, my mom would be like, "Shh, shh, shh. Billy D. Williams." Then <laughs> <laughs> mm. he was even on Star Wars. He was even in Star Wars. I had so smooth. Now, now, were you still a fan after you found out he was? Uh, he was ab- abusing his uh, wife. That's hard. It's hard. It's very hard. A-, a lot of these celebrities, it's so tough. Like, I was listening to a Michael Jackson song today. Uh, you know, it just popped up on my Spotify uh, playlist. And I, 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 can't, I can't listen to the music and then not think about what he's, everything that he's, you know, been charged with and done. You know, it's, yep. it's challenging. Well, we're in such a culture now where we're in this culture of like this cancel culture of like, oh, we're just going to eradicate this person from. And in some instances, like Harvey Weinstein, I can see how that can easily be done. But we're not going to be able to do that with Michael Jackson. No. His music is literally a cultural cornerstone of our existence. Absolutely. Just time and time again. So. We can enjoy that and still uh, think about and learn from what he did. I mean, you can't say your ABCs without thinking about ABC. <laughs> Easy is one, two, three. Yes. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> it's Thriller, Michael Jackson Thriller. Come on. We th- we planned our day, our day around when that video was oh, going to be on. Like man. We, we knew 7 o'clock, you better be in front of that TV. Because they're gonna play Thriller, and we had never seen anything like it. Nothing. I mean, they didn't. They didn't make music videos. They made music movies. Oh, yeah. Right? There was a beginning, middle, end. They were telling stories, and it was captivating. I don't know what they're doing with music videos today, but they're not. They're not doing that. Um. So your first drink was a Colt Forty Five. <laughs> Did, now, was that given to you, or was that? It was purchased for me. I, wow. I had It was my 12th birthday, yeah. and uh, I I had told my mom that um, that I was going to go to some pizza party or something, and I needed money to do this, get a lot of pizza for this birthday party that my friends were throwing for me or something. And so she gave me money, and then I used that money to have, like, an older person friend of my brother's or something, buy me a bunch of beers. And then I took those beers with my sister and this other dude, and we went into a park, and I just drank all that beer. Wow. And I got so sick. My mom came and picked me up, and I threw up all in the back of her back seat of her car. And I remember her going, that doesn't smell like pizza. <laughs> <laughs> so she knew, you know. And uh, I didn't get into trouble per se. I think that she, yeah, I, I don't know why I didn't get in trouble. I, I guess the next, she didn't say anything about it. She was really upset, I could tell. Yeah. And uh, and my dad didn't get involved in that. Uh, and so the next morning I had to go to church. She just made me get up 
uh, you know, and I had to go to church hungover, and I kind of figured that that was my punishment. (laughs) With the going to AA, was that what was the hardest step for you? The hardest step for me was uh, speaking in front of uh, the group. Really? Believe it or not, uh, because I was petrified of doing that. I was, I absolutely told myself when I got into AA that I was never going to speak at a meeting. (laughs) And uh, I had to give myself that out so I could just participate in it. And, uh, knowing kind of in the back of my mind that eventually I was going to have to reach a point where I told my story in front of a group of people. And I was in AA for the better part of two years before I officially spoke at a meeting, was up front and told my sobriety tale, you know, how I got where I was, where it got me, where I was, where where I am now. That's basically what they say. So, so it took me like two years to, to even do that. It took you two years, so you've been going to the the meetings, but it never having gotten it up to speak in front of. To me, in my head, I always thought that was the first thing you had to do in the meeting. Like if it was your first day, how many names, you know, Bill, Bob, whatever, and then you have to go up front. So you don't you don't have to speak if you don't want to. Oh no! And they make it very clear that the only desire to belong to Alcoholics Anonymous, the only requirement. Oh. is the desire to stop drinking. Got you. That's it. So you could go, like I did, you could go and sit there yeah. and not, you know, and, and, and I did reach out to people. I made connections, and I had, right away I got a sponsor. Uh, so I did those kind of things, but I just never formally talked at a meeting. You know, I never raised my hand and went, oh, my boss did this today, and I wanted to, I never did any of that. And then two years in, my sponsor was just like, you know, you should really, tell your story for your for your anniversary for your sobriety anniversary uh, and i did you know and i i that was the ol- i only did that one time that was the only time you spoke in front of the group yep that was the only time and i continued to go after that and and uh kind of do the work you know but i didn't uh i didn't do you know i wasn't up in front of them again was there anything else you did besides go to AA that helped you maintain your sobriety? Did you go to therapy? Did you journal? Ex- like, what else did you put in place? I uh, I definitely went to therapy. I went to therapy every week. Uh, like I, just regular psychotherapy or? Yeah, with okay. a counselor. And uh, I, uh, I moved. At the time, when I got sober, I was living in Ohio and I chose a, a treatment facility in Boston because my sister was living there temporarily and I wanted a space to get away from everything in Ohio to get sober and I had every intention of going back to Ohio after rehab but once I got involved in once I was like halfway through rehab like a weekend I realized I, I don't want to go back there and my the therap- one of my therapists at rehab was just like, why don't you stay here mm-hmm. in Boston? And uh, my initial reaction was like, I can't do that. I can't, can't leave my life in Ohio. Mm. But then I realized I didn't really have a life in Ohio. I had a bunch of shit in my apartment that I was sharing with this guy, but I didn't have anything back there. And so I just said, yeah, 
maybe I should. And so that was my first, you know, experience living in an urban environment and, uh, you know, getting a job and sending out resumes and making friends and, you know, all of those things were enough to keep me really focused on getting better. You know, there was a, th literally there was a, a learning curve of, of about, well, definitely the first year, just being a, in a big city. It just felt like a big vacation. It was super positive. It was a super positive experience. The job I got was great. My friends were great. Mm -hmm. You know. There is, there's something so powerful about uh, changing your environment. Um, and even if you're not ready, because that's the thing I, I really want people to pick up on is you really weren't, you didn't plan on leaving and moving. It's just something you were just like, man, I, I, if I really look back, I don't have anything there, nothing really keeping me there, nothing valuable. Uh, why not? You know, and uh, it's a chance for you to grow. And there was fear staying where you were because you could fall back into your old habits. I uh, There was a story about, there was this girl, she had a podcast, and uh, and she was really going through a tough time. And her parents kept saying, come back home, come back home. She lived out here in L.A. And she's like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm going to stay here. And eventually she uh, took her life. And I, I mentioned that because my cousin sent me a message today or through Instagram telling me to come back to Belize. He's like, you got to, he's just like he, you know, me and him, we, t we talk a lot. We text a lot. He follows me on Instagram and might listen to my podcast. And he's just like, I just feel like you need to be back. You need that recharge. And it, it I felt it. I was like, he's right. Like, uh, I've been out here trying to go, 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 but I need to change my environment. I need to go back home. Like, there's something about Belize that is uh, enriching and uh, nourishing, you know, um, and uh, that would give me uh, an, a perspective that maybe I don't, because you don't have perspective when you're in it. Fish don't know, like, you know, when you're in the relationship, when you're in that apartment, you don't you don't really know what else is out there, you know? Um, so I just want to encourage the listeners who are listening. If you, if you, if the environment you're in isn't serving you, ask yourself that, is it, is it serving you? Are you growing? Are you, are you, are you, are you excited about your, your friends and, and the people around you and the opportunities? If not, take a chance, you know, there's no, there's no right time. Yeah, there's no right time, and it 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 was such a pivotal thing for me because what I was drinking at the the last you know the last year of my drinking I would sit in Ohio and I would just be thinking you know I was I was 23 at the time and I'm thinking how am I you know what's gonna happen to me like I would look out the window of my apartment in Ohio and I'm just like. And I would be alone. My boyfriend would be at work, and I was just drinking, getting drunk. And I knew that I wanted to be heard by people. And I felt like I had kind of something to say. I didn't really know what it was. But I remember thinking, like, how, how in the world am I going to be heard? It just felt like an impossibility. And it felt like once... 
my sobriety kind of happened and I was in that rehab and I decided to move there, it felt like I felt a shift. You know, I felt like, oh, okay, well, this is, this is where I, this is where I need to be, you know? And I, I, I didn't necessarily continue thinking, how's my voice going to be heard? Mm -hmm. Because it felt like my voice was starting to be heard. You know, it felt like I was doing things that were more akin to what I really wanted inside in my heart and not just the status quo. You know, because a lot of people that grew up in Ohio that I, that grew up with me, they just stayed there. They're doing the same things. They buy a house, you know, a block away from their parents' house where they grew up and they stay in jobs and they have kids and, and that's just how they want to live their life. But I never wanted any of that. Mm. I never wanted any of that. I felt like I want to do something big. Why not? Why wouldn't you want to do something big? If you're going to go to the trouble of being born, <laughs> keeping yourself alive. Right, if you're going to outrun the, the millions of sperm, right? Yeah. You're, you're the one in one trillion sperm that make it to the egg. And there was, there was some other sperm at that egg. You know what I mean? Like you got there, but there was some other ones trying to fight to get in, and, and you got there first. And uh, so that, that means something. Exactly. You're a fighter. And my birth in particular, because my mom was on birth control when I was born. Wow. So you really. <laughs> yeah. My, my dad and mom had like a, a, my older brother, and they had my sister, and then they were fine. They wanted a boy and a girl. And my mom was on birth control in the 60s. And women were taking this birth control and getting pregnant. Right. And that was what happened with me. I was an accident baby. Wow. Come to find out, interestingly enough, that birth control that she was taking at the yeah. time is now used as a fertility drug. <gasps> so I was born, my brother and sister, asthmatic. They had their appendix taken out. They had their wisdom teeth taken out. They were, uh, my sister was anemic when she was younger. My brother has asthma. My sister's asthmatic. They had all of these maladies. I had none of those. I had none of those. I, I, I feel like my mom made a super baby. Well, wait, now I'm confused. You, wait, you, you. The, I was the last born. You were the last one, and your the pill that your mom was taking when you were born was actually a fertility drug, but the the pill that your mom was taking, she wasn't taking a pill with the other kids. Oh or? no. She, that was just her. Oh. She had planned on that. She planned on those. But then she was taking this. Some some super fertility drug. <laughs> yeah, that made like, like I, I always attributed it to that because why else? I mean, the only trait that I share with my brother and sister is the alcoholism. Right. And the fact that we have to wear glasses. All of us are have poor sight. But wow. the rest, the things that they dealt with, I mean, just the, man. I, and I remember dreading thinking that those things were going to happen to me, too. And I'm so glad that they didn't. All right. So uh, uh, the, are you saying all the birth control pills back in those days turned out to be fertility drugs? Or just your mom was taking a fertility drug? Just my mom was taking this one particular drug at the time, which was thought to be a birth, a birth control. control. And it wasn't all, but it was just this formula. Wow. And... And a lot of women were taking these also. Yes, and they wow. were getting pregnant wow. by accident, not expecting to get pregnant. Um, 
So you were born what year? 1967. 1967. When did you come out as gay? Uh, I came out for the first time when I was 17. 17. And not all the way out. I just came out to certain people, like certain people that were close. So to you me. didn't throw a party and be like, all right, guys, gather around. Yeah, none of that. <laughs> none of that, like you see in the movies. I'm coming out. Yeah. No, just... <laughs> Um, and when my mom found out, she, she basically knew, right. You know, and I think my dad kind of knew too, you know, cause I was always drawn towards, you know, I remember I used to draw pictures of Cher all the time, <laughs> like with the gowns and the hair and the, I was just obsessed with her, shared. you know? That should have been the big giveaway. That's you know? hilarious. <laughs> Were you wearing your mom's like uh, clothes? Make any of that stuff? I used to. I used to put them on when she wasn't home. Yeah, like just to play. You know, because I love women's clothes. Uh-huh. I really do. But I, I think I. I don't know why I went through that phase, but I. I stopped doing that because it just didn't feel like it looked good. You know, mm. like I. A lot of gay men do drag. Uh, as a rite of passage or as something that they've always wanted to explore. And some of them look really good, but I didn't. If I looked good <laughs> when I did it, I probably would have done it more. <laughs> but I don't want to be this, like, big, goofy <laughs> oaf in a dress, you know? What's the point? Uh. But I love women's clothing. I love handbags and the shoes and the jewelry and the skirts and the blazer. I'm just obsessed. I still am. And, and obsessed in what way? Is it something that like you um you, you look up or you notice or like do you buy like you know, like what, what do you mean by obsessed? It's just fascinating to me to see how our clothing has evolved and how you know, the the costumey aspect of it right. and why a particular uh skirt is is you know, is seamed in a particular way or yep. why it's why it's laid a certain way, why it's cut a particular way, um, what it means to, to be wearing like a longer skirt as opposed to a shorter skirt, what uh, the construction of the garment is, what the fabric mm. is, how, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just an endless array, you know, as opposed to men's clothing. And men's clothing is, is kind of coming along the same way right. as we as a people were all grappling with this gender identity that's so hot right now because we're all kind of relearning things. Um, but it's not as fun as women's clothes. Yeah, you know, I saw this uh, woman the other day who was put together to the, is it nines or tens? What did I say? I think to the to oh, the nines. To the nines, right? I don't know why they don't say ten. That's why my brain was like, I, I think it's nines, but why is it not ten? Anyway, um, head to toe. And it made me realize how few times you see women or just people, even men in America, dressed like that. Like where they're like they there's an outfit that they put together that didn't come together. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like usually like you, you most people will buy a suit, but the jacket came with the pants, came with the shirt, came with the tie. There wasn't much thought versus somebody piecing something together. And you could tell that's what she did from the hat to the shoes to the dress. 
in in the, in the colors and the, and the way she was walking with it and i was like and i could tell like i think what fascinated me was it was like an early sunday morning and i was like where are you going dressed like that <laughs> i mean and it wasn't a church outfit i knew it wasn't church i was just like i could tell like she's just going to get coffee but like that's her every day and i ran into her again uh like a few days later at the grocery store again dressed to the nines and I had to say something. I was like, you dress impeccably well. I just wanted to say that to you. And, uh, and she, was, she was from Romania. And it turns out she's an architect oh, and, wow. uh, and does like 3D designs. Uh, and she said to me, she's like, I don't understand these women who spend so much on cosmetics and then they walk around in flip-flops. <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah. And it's true, right? I never thought about that. Like, People spend so much on their makeup and the cream and this and that, and then they they put on uh, some Lululemon sweats or you know some some shaggy uh, sweats. So it's like yeah, put the, do the whole thing if you're gonna if you're gonna do it. But that's a very I think that's more an American thing. You go to Europe, everybody's dressed. Oh, that's what I loved about London. Everybody's oh, dressed. Yeah, people, the men. Yeah, all everybody. The, the pants yeah. are the right length <laughs> and the shoes. They got an umbrella that yeah. matches everything. <laughs> like, just, I mean, man, I just felt like I was in a movie when they, I was They there. put thought into all of it. <sighs> and I'd love to dress like that. I see it, and I'm like, oh, that looks great. I'm going to start. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dress up. And then, um, but then I go through, like, you know, I'm, I'm just coming to terms with being uh, a bit, like, bipolar, manic depressive. And I realize I go through these phases where, like, when I'm manic, I I want to I want to dress up and um, and you know I put the, I want to put the time in and I have the energy to do it. But when I'm down, man, it's like if I take a shower today, we're gonna be lucky, you know. <laughs> and so it's like I don't want to I don't want to start anything I can't be consistent with, <laughs> you know what I mean? But at the same time, I as I'm getting older, I'm adding because now I have had female comedians comment on how I dress. And they're like, Leo, you got to step it up. <laughs> so I'm, getting, <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting female pressure uh, about, because I was, there's a point where I was just wearing the same thing almost every day, on stage, off stage, it didn't matter. And, and the female comics were like, this is not acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a great face. Your face oh, thanks. is, you are very, very good looking. So, you, you really don't have to try too hard. Which, it, it, which is, I think my, um, my Achilles' heel, is because uh, I'm doing fine without dressing up. I don't dress up, but I don't realize I could be doing great. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Or extraordinary. But there's it, also the risk of, of you getting in front of people. And if you're if you got that really great face, very handsome, mm. and then you also dress really nice, it may take longer for you to break through. Absolutely. Because audiences see that and they go, "Well, how am I going to relate to this guy? He looks like a Greek god." You know who I think of? I think of all the time is uh, Chinadu. Do you ever yeah, work with Chinadu? Yeah, yeah. Is there anyone better looking than Chinadu? All those Nigerian comedians—they're just chiseled and ripped for no reason they do like three push-ups a day unbelievable and, 
and like and and so he has he doesn't have to wear anything. Chinadu goes up there with a, a, a regular t shirt, regular jeans, and he gets all the women. Yeah, and complete. I don't think he thinks about how he looks at all, at all, at all, zero. Zero. And it shows because yeah. his comedy is so on point right. and so relatable, and he's such a sweet, good guy. And you're like, man, you know, so it's just blessings, blessings. When I see a person like that, I'm like, good for you, man. I feel so, you know, I just want to, like, hug him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I always give him a hard time. Yeah. Like, I'm just like, dude, you're just – there's no one better looking than you. You know, and that's what's great. I, I love when people who uh, look great and they're comfortable with looking great. I, I realize I'm not comfortable with the attention. I remember when uh, I was in, like, really great shape, really great shape, and people just feel like they have a license to come up and f- touch you and feel you and uh, to the point where women would, like, especially like after shows and they would just like lift up my shirt. Uh, dudes would lift up my shirt too, uh, grab my arms. You know, you just become this, you become objectified. And it made me realize that's what it made me realize, uh, why you see, um, especially like women, you see this in women, like beautiful women, they have a beautiful face, but they're like 40, 50 pounds overweight because they're so gorgeous that when they lose that weight, they get so much attention that is disturbing, you know, and and I was like, oh, I understand now. It's nobody that level of even when I remember uh, remember those Vibram shoes with, mm-hmm. the, with the five fingers. Yeah, I when I, the, I I had those before pretty much anybody had them, and I remember like every time I went hiking, people would stop me. And sometimes very abruptly to look at the shoes. And I was like, wow, this is so annoying. Like, I stopped wearing the shoes, you know? It, yeah. And it's just like, it, it's like if when you're a person who likes to, I, I love to be in my head and be thinking. And to, to have these, um, you know, uh, abrupt interruptions or, or whatever, it's, you go, this is not, this isn't worth it. I'd yeah. rather wear sweats and a hoodie than to get this level of attention. So it's made me empathetic to, people who are struggling with losing weight um, and uh, or, you know, just want to wear sweats every day. It's, you know, I go, oh, I, I you could see, I'm like, oh, you wearing sweats, but I could tell you are gorgeous under there, you mm-hmm. know, like you, mm-hmm. you're hiding a whole lot. I got, I got a trained eye for those kind of things, ladies. <laughs> um, but I think good looking people have a cross to bear that, that, if you think about it, and a lot of people don't want to think about it because they're like, oh, boo-hoo, you know, yeah. so what? They have to deal with that. Yeah. But if you take uh, a woman in today's world who, you know, when's a l- if when a stranger speaks to you, there's a little bit of fear in that. Yes. And so for a woman to – that's why I think they develop these – they, they like a scowl or some cut to keep people yeah, at bay, right. or otherwise people would just be coming up to them all the time, and that's a violation. Yes. I remember when I was in shape, and I never took my shirt off in a gay bar, ever. And my friends finally we were at a we were at a bar, and it was summertime, and there was an outdoor dancing part and an indoor dancing part, and they were like, "Come on, Eric, you got to take off your shirt." And I'm just like, "Okay," 
You know, it just felt like, okay, I'll do it. And so I did it, and I'll never forget, I came walking off the dance floor, and a guy grabbed my butt. Mm. And I got so angry. I said to him, what, what makes you think you could do that? Mm. I don't even know you. And you're just grabbing my butt? I just felt like such a shocking violation that somebody just reached out and just grabbed grabbed on me and I, I you know and of course I, I was sobered everybody else was drinking so it's just like they were all my friends were laughing it off but that stayed with me I'll never forget that you know now I wish now I'm like grab my butt <laughs> <laughs> can you know on that topic then you know, me and my friend, we were talking about, because uh, this is uh, LGBTQIAP month, or Gay Pride Month. Yes. Um, and, you know, when you, you know, my, my friend took her uh, daughter to the Gay Pride Parade. And, you know, and her daughter's like 13, and she's talking about the, the men who are out there in just like a thong. And, uh, you know, the women who are, um, you know, and, and chaps and, and kind of, and she was like, is this the type of pride that they're talking about? How, how do you feel about that? Do you, is that, is, uh, is that something that you support or is that something you like, we, we need to clean up this image or, because it's funny, you go, you know, because the, the image of, when we think about gays is like, oh, they, they just like to grab and touch and, and whatever and there's no boundaries, but here you are saying like, Yo, man, you can't touch me like that. Like, that's a violation. Yeah, because I think that a person's physical self is really all that we have. So if you're just reaching in to people, yeah. that shows a really, that's a huge disrespect for that person, that person. Right. And I feel that, uh, I, I don't feel that we should be in the streets naked. I really don't. I feel that that's not uh, normal life, you know. We're not... Uh, you know, for some reason, we've always covered up our genitals. We've done it, and it's worked. I think we should still keep doing that, <laughs> you know. We don't just have them hanging out, you know. And I feel like to show that to everybody, you're not taking into consideration that there's people that don't want to see that. Mm. So you can't impinge on their right and be like, oh, you're going to, you're going to see this, mm -hmm. pardon me, you're going to see my ass mm -hmm. right now. That person has a right to not see your ass. Right. And I think that you should pay attention to that, you know. And I think that no matter what I think or what anybody thinks, I think that people are always going to do that. They're always going to throw on a jock strap and dance on a float for gay, gay pride. Uh, but I know I'll never do that. And I don't think anybody that I love that I'm close to would ever do that. I think that the people that are most important to me understand the ramifications of doing something like that. Mm, right. And how not only is it damaging to other people's rights, but it can be damaging to you too. To put yourself in that situation where you're just a, you're a piece of meat mm -hmm. is not feeding your soul at all. And if anything, it's going to be, it's going to cause some damage unless you're very careful, you know. So that's why, and a lot of those boys that you see, they're also drinking a lot. They're also taking a lot of drugs. They're also 
taking a lot of chances sexually. So they're, they, you know, you see them on Instagram and you think, oh, they're living their best life. They're probably living a real drunk life, a drugged up life, and a, and a kind of a sad, empty life. You know, you just, you can't judge it by what it looks like on the outside at all. G growing up uh, gay, growing up uh, drinking, there's, so there's drugs, there's dealing with your sexuality. Those two combined, were there moments where uh, you thought about taking your life? Or w was it, did you have it all in perspective? I, I think I've thought about suicide a normal amount. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I knew a saying it. I'm like, that's that. Is that right? <laughs> is there a normal amount of thought one could put into suicide? I, I feel like for some reason or another, the town I grew up in and the street that I lived on, the neighborhood I was in, there were so many suicides growing up. On my street alone, we had one, two, three, four suicides over the span of 30 years on my street of families that we knew. And then beyond that, in my high school and the, the kids I was growing up, there was probably about five, five or six other suicides that, that I heard of growing up. So it was always kind of like uh, something that, that I was aware of. But I knew that I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to leave the people behind I didn't want them to have to deal with the fact that, that I could. I think suicide is like the ultimate fuck you, you know. It's the ultimate expression of like, look, I hate myself so much that I'm going to make you think about that the rest of your life. I'm going to end mine. Which is what we, we think is going to happen, right? We think the, the, the other people are going to think about us the rest of their lives and then Trump tweets something out. And then we're all, yeah, then we <laughs> we're got all distracted by that. We got something bigger to hate. <laughs> yeah. Oh man! You know, uh, the there there was uh, a scene in Game of Thrones where somebody, I, I, somebody was talking about taking their life, and, and they're like, and they'll, and the people will remember me forever, and blah blah blah. And the, the other guy's response was something like, uh, "Yeah, maybe for two weeks." They'll they'll talk about it, but then uh, you know bills would have to be paid, rents due, somebody gets sick, you yeah. know the game is on. The wheel is still <laughs> yeah, gonna turn. It's gonna turn no matter what. <laughs> you know we're gonna be all. It's gonna there's gonna be a hot topic every yeah, yeah, every yeah. day. Oh now. yeah, the, the media made sure that uh, you don't you don't hold on to to those dear memories for too long. Absolutely. <laughs> But I, I always wanted to stick around. Like, I, I want to know who's going to win the Oscar. Right. I want to know who's going to win the election. Mm. I don't want to miss out on a thing. <laughs> I, no matter what troubles I have, I think at the base of everything is I'm a life lover. I fucking love life, and I love being here, and I don't want to go. I do not want to go. You know, and I... I I'll probably be thinking that to the moment I go, you know, and that's just the way, that's just the way it is, you know. 
Yeah, you know, the, I I get these flare ups uh, time to time where I do I really not only am I thinking about it, like I really feel it and I can see myself taking steps um, and I have to pull myself back and it, it is that thing of where I think about oh, man Bad Boys Three. I got to see that. And then they're, they're making a four. I, got, I can't miss that one. And uh, even the game tonight, game six, come on. And um, I, have a, I have a nephew. I got to see how this little rascal turns out. Um, and Rihanna's going to be in her 60s one day. <laughs> I want to see that. Because you know she's going to be such a fucking rad woman. She's going to write a book. She'll oh, have yeah. kids. She, Oh yeah, she's already she's already got her what, the first clothing line by a, a singer. Yeah, she's got the something. Her, well, a black woman is her, it first? Her Fenty is just yeah. She revolutionized cosmetic the cosmetic industry. How so? With uh, with supplying what's needed, shades. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so we need we need shades. The world have we is, not? Are you telling me that we have not had? I mean, I don't know anything about women's makeup. Are you telling me that we have not had shades for black women up to this point? It was problematic. It was very hard. The people, the cosmetics were not addressing it. Come on. They were not addressing Look at this. When, when are we going to get brown Band-Aids? We've never had brown <laughs> Band-Aids. You know what I mean? There have always been like, I remember as a kid asking my mom, How, what about, you know, because I said, you know, why is, why is it pink? You know, I said, why is the Band-Aids pink? And she goes, well, so they don't, so they match your skin. And I'm like, well, that can't be true because there's no brown Band-Aids. Right. And there's brown people. Chinadu can't wear. <laughs> the listeners don't know Chinadu. Yeah, look up Chinadu. Uh, uh, I think it's Unaka. Unaka, yeah. Uh, very funny guy, but he's very dark. So he, he definitely cannot wear uh, the regular Band-Aids. He has to take a little Sharpie and. Yeah. <laughs> and color that oh. in. <laughs> oh, my God, that guy. There, yeah, there, there's so many things. There places uh, my friend was just showing me. I follow this couple on YouTube. Uh, Liz, or is, I-Z, I think is her, her name. It's a tra- it was one of those couples that travel all over the world. And everywhere they go, I'm like, I got to go there. I write it down. They were just in uh, Switzerland and Iceland. And uh, you know, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta go. I can't go. I can't go before I go. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. And so, what, what else are you looking forward to? Like, what, like you, or like, what, like in terms, of, like personally, like those are all things like Rihanna and the Oscars and things like that. But for you personally, what are the things getting you out of bed every morning? Uh, I think about uh, writing a book. I feel like there's, you know, there there's an old saying that everybody's got like a good book in them, and I, I really feel like, I, I really feel like I have a good book, mm-hmm. and I I want to experience that holding a book that I've written, in and, pu- had published, and I want to hold that book in my hand, and uh, you know it's certainly not something that people do for the money. I don't think that there's a lot of money out there, but I feel like. It would be payment enough to just write something and then have that book in my hand. I think that that would be an incredible experience. I think it'd be an incredible experience to do late night TV, to be on. Uh, I mean, th- those would th- that would change my life. Mm. And uh, to know people that have done that, um, 
it's very hard for me to, to not, when I sit down with them, go, how, f- how fucking amazing. You're right. You know right. what you just did? You're on The Tonight Show? Mm-hmm. You're on The Tonight Show. That's where Johnny Carson used to be. That's where, that's where you know, that's your life changes when you're on The Tonight Show. And I feel like, I feel like uh, p- some people, because they're part of this work that we're doing, they, they kind of diminish it a little bit. And I'm like, no, you blow your own horn a little bit. Look what you've done. Look what you did. Look where it got you. So I would just be thrilled to do that. You know, to be honest, you just inspired me because, you know, you're right. Doing a late night spot, that's something I have always aspired to. And it's something that I've kind of diminished because I'm like, who's doing late night spots anymore? And uh, it's not, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't have the same weight that it used to carry back in the day. However, sitting here listening to you talk about it, it, it reminds me of the uh, the fact that it wasn't about, it's not about that. It's just about the fact that it's something I want to do just for the sake of doing it. And the, I also want to go through the process of pursuing it. Like it's, it's worth it to me. I think that's the question people have to ask themselves. Like, is the process, is it worth it for you? Right to 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 do it you know if it's something you want to do then you also have to recognize that it's more about i may never get it but it gives you a, gives me a reason to get out of bed every morning it gives me a reason to sit down and um to write jokes and to work on my craft because i have that in my head and so y- you know we could very well die without having achieved what we really want to achieve but in the meantime we would have lived a very rich life because at least we were pursuing something a lot of great people die without achieving all the you know who was it the aviator uh that leonardo dicaprio played oh howard hughes howard hughes he achieved a lot of great things but there's also a lot of things he wasn't able to achieve but what drove him was his passion for the it was the pursuit of it you know um, and so sometimes you don't get the accolades and you don't get the likes, but you did it. It was done. You know? Yeah. And um, you think of all the people on the world. You think of how, you know, you see those pictures of our planet when it's when they take it from so far away and we're just this little marble. Yeah. And so you think of all those people on there, millions and millions of people, but maybe only 200 of them have been on the late show you know maybe you know like you think like wow. maybe just 300 of them have done the tonight show wow and so candace thompson she's in that group yeah that that's that that's that point one percent yeah she's in that group orlando labor to be in that like nick Guerra. yeah you know what i mean and even like i think uh, you know the tonight show to me in my head remains the pinnacle but there's all kinds of levels you know conan is great and comedy central is great and you know uh the late show the jim corden and all that that's great you know but for some reason in my head man the tonight show is just it absolutely because you because it's history 
Yeah. Uh, Richard Pryor. Yes. Uh, I mean, just watching old Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson had such a love and passion for interviewing people and talking to people, but also making them shine brighter than they otherwise would have. You know, I met Jay Leno uh, in the green room at the Comedy Magic Club, which is an amazing club here in uh, Hermosa, California. And as soon as I said hi to him, I I was like, oh, this is why you're the host of The Tonight Show. He immediately makes you feel like you're the most important person in the world. He looks at you in a way where you know he's genuine and he's present and there's there's no ego and he, he he's in his eyes there's this I'm rooting for you like I'm supportive I'm here no matter what you say like I like he's gonna find the bright side of it he's he's gonna he's gonna make you know he's gonna have we're gonna have fun you know mm-hmm. and I go my god this is why they pay you so much money <laughs> this is what they pay you for yeah yep and talk about hard shoes to fill you know, because everybody, it's hard. The way our world is now, there's so much content and so much. It's just vast. You can't even count it. It's just there's so many things that people are watching. and But it's hard to think about a time where the world was a smaller place and everybody did one thing. Yes. And so The Tonight Show was one of those things that everybody did. That's how you ended the day at 11.30 after the news. You fell asleep watching Johnny Carson. Right. And that was your touchstone culturally wow. to the world. Your bookend. Your bo- wow, that is you true. You know what I mean? The whole world just done. Yeah. And to have to, – that's an institution day in, day out, year after year after year. Right. He did that and set that in place. So now it's still there. It's still going. Same with Saturday Night Live. It's still there, and so if you're if you're able to be a part of that, that's you're joining a very elite group of people, and you should be extremely proud of that. Mm-hmm. And never, I would never denigrate that or try to downplay that. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. Well, uh, what are you reading right now? Are you reading? Uh, actually, before you answer that, I want to go back briefly if we can to because you said you went to therapy one-on-one were there any tools or strategies that you learned in that therapy session that has helped you to move forward absolutely uh keep it simple and write it down for me if i write down something i'm 99 percent more uh guaranteed to to accomplish it and finish it if I write it down, physically put it on a piece of paper and have that piece of paper in front of me, that's the key for me. Write it down. You know, and even if you're writing down a whole bunch of shit, write it down. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, because sometimes, sometimes there's just like two things I'm writing down or three things. <laughs> but other times there's just like, ah, da, 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 da. you go on and on and on. But to physically put it, down and have it in front of you is a huge thing because it takes you out of this whole like ah, this whole there's no form or function in here it's all just a big soup but you just write it down 
you're guaranteed to to get it done. So that's what that's what therap I got that from my therapist. I love it. Um, and going back to what are you reading right now? Uh, I just finished uh, a book called uh, 10,000 Miles to Freedom, an amazing story about two people that escaped slavery in the deep south, and they escaped by uh, the they were husband and wife, Mm. And they escaped by the white. Are you familiar with the story? No. Are, are, are you going to give us? Are you going to spoil the ending for us? Well, I mean, the whole book came about as a way of. I the, it, it's not going to spoil the ending okay. because p- because they got they got free. Right, right, right. The way they did it and the harrowing journey uh, is and the the way it's written is fascinating to me. Because it's it's these were two people that were kept legally were hindered from learning how to read and write. Mm. Legally were enslaved. Legally had you know their identity and their whole lives stripped from them. They they grabbed that back, and the way they did it is the wife dressed up as a man, and she was light skinned, so she posed as his master. Mm. And they had to carry this ruse through Come on. getting on the train and getting on the, getting, <sighs> you know. And he had, I mean, it's just. Oh, this is a bu- this is a movie. <sighs> I mean, it just, I was re- I'm getting chills <laughs> thinking about the story right now. It's so good. It's so good. And then when they get to freedom, they both learn how to read, read. and write. <sighs> so the guy writes the book. Come on. And you can tell, too, oh the way his writing is is it's really interesting to see how English was, how people were instructed to write and how beautifully he executed that. Man. It's just like, it's just, it's incredible. See, the way you are about clothes and beautiful clothes, like I I can admire that too, but I really uh, admire beautiful language in writing. Like Lolita one of my favorite books, best opening, Lolita, Light of My Life. Uh, I forget, I forget the rest of it, but anyway, it was just like that opening. I was like, I'm, I'm reading this. Um, that sounds so. Was it like how long did it take you to read it? Like three days? Oh, not even. Two, not really. Even. I could not put it down. I could not put it down. And the prose is so. It's just. It's such a interesting historical piece of work yeah and uh and such a compelling story and and how could you not root for these people right right and what they had to go through i mean she wrapped her she wrapped her head in uh at the time they used like this i think it was called a poultice Mm p-o-u-l-t-i-c-e if you had let's say you had something wrong with your jaw where you would put all these herbs and wrap them in a cloth yeah. and then you would tie that cloth around your head and just oh yeah you would just do that to try to fix this <laughs> so she did that so that she wouldn't so she could play that she was like this white dude that was too sick to talk you know and to really oh you know, spell spell the po the the p-o-u-p-o-u-l-t-i-c-e poultice oh 
And uh, so that was her way of being able to get out of uh, situations where, you know, white dudes were around her saying things like, uh, oh, why yeah, don't you... Racial, right. You know, they're like, why don't you, uh, tr why don't you treat your slave? Uh, why do you treat him so nicely? Why do you, t why do you talk to him like, you know, like you do? Like he's just an, a normal person. You know that mm. things like that. Yeah. You know, and uh, oh man, it's just an incredible story. So that's that's <laughs> the last the last book I read. And then I'm reading this Tony Robbins thing. Oh uh. God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fucking drinking the Kool-Aid. Drinking the fucking Kool-Aid. You know you're in trouble when you're turning to Tony Robbins. <laughs> no, wait, so what made you pick it up? And then why Why do you feel like that about what, – what, what book is it? Awakening it's, the Giant? No, it's the finances one, the one how to control your finances. Is it called Money or the the one the, – his newest one? It's the old one. It's the Money one. Oh. I, I actually read his book Money, and uh, I, I found it very um, – uh, most of it was useless for me, but the the three things I got out of it was if you want to build wealth um, is um, consistency and discipline and, you know, just build it up incrementally. People, I think a lot of people think that wealthy people take these huge risks, but they don't. They take small, very calculated uh, risks, but really opportunities. They don't, they're not trying to go for moonshots these guys they even warren buffett just slowly building over time um and that's been underestimated so that book just reminds me of that of like just take your time nothing happens overnight and every now and again something big happens but it's only the result of your of you patiently building you yeah. know um but it's what you're reading the money thing because, it, as you mentioned in the, at the very beginning, like you get in the financial messes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Are you trying to work yourself out of a financial mess now? Yeah, uh, and mostly uh, it's nothing. It's not a huge ball of wax. It's tiny little balls of wax over the last, you know, twenty, thirty years. Absolutely. Of just abandoning things and walking away from debts that are very small, but uh, but I've never had a plan with my money mm. and uh, it's something that I think about all the time uh, I'm never not thinking about money uh, and I d I don't want to be that way I don't want that to be such a, a presence in my life I don't I want to be able to have money to help people and I want to be able to not have to worry about you know my future and, w and my you know my living situation and all that and uh i've always just cut and paste you know always just paycheck to paycheck to paycheck to paycheck you know and now that i'm a waiter i mean it's even worse because you can really take yourself to the edge and then be like oh i'll just pick up an extra shift you know and you know try to rake in the money that way and uh i just i no longer want to be that way and 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 i feel like I I'm I think I'm a special case because I feel like I've never run into somebody with these financial problems that I have. I've never run into you know somebody who's been years and years and years of living like this, you know. Like I could never if I apply for credit, you know. I mean they they get a message back going, "Are you fucking kidding me?" 
I mean, keep him busy. We're coming there. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, stall him. You know, that kind of thing, you know, and I don't I don't want to live like that anymore. I want to be able to rent a car. I want to be able to get a nice apartment if I want to. I want to. Yeah. um, Is there so many people who want like I hear people talking about this. They want that FU money and I want FDS money. I want somebody to be like, you want to go grab lunch? Hell yeah. You want to go to London? Hell yeah. Like. You want to go to Bahamas? Hell yeah! Like, you want to help? Can, you want to start a business? Hell, like I want that money where I can say yes to a married. You know, whether my kid needs something, I don't have kids, but if my kid needed something for college or wants to go to college, I got it. I, I want to be able to just say yes. Absolutely. Because I'm such a people pleaser, it hurts me when I can't please people. Yeah. And, and I only want the money so I can just be like, but, you know, when you're a people, there's never enough money because as we see with MC Hammer and oh. <laughs> it's like these people have hundreds of millions and then all of a sudden uh, nothing. Yeah. You know, that just goes to show yeah. you how, you know, it's 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 ridiculous. I want to be able to give people money. I think that that would be the biggest thrill is mm. just to be able to give somebody a thousand dollars, you know, just to be here, yeah. just you know, just to lessen the load a little bit, right. you know. I would, I, I think that that would be an amazing thing to do. But yet, there's also small things that can give you the same kind of feeling. Like lately, what I've been doing is, uh, you know, and I, I, I I've, t- I've talked about this before, and I don't want to highlight it as like, oh, I'm a saint. Rather, I bring it up because it just goes to show you how easy it is to give people things. Is I, I never give money to a homeless person if they ask for money. And I always felt bad about that. So I decided instead that if, if a homeless person asks me for something to eat, mm-hmm. I will always buy them food, no matter what. So if somebody says, I'm hungry, can, can you can do you have any food or do you have money for food if they mention food at all i stop what i'm doing there's always a 711 or always. a wendy's yep. or a, you know and get them food the first time i did it i was shaking because i'm thinking this, this guy could be me that could be me right there and the way the the way he reacted like I was giving him the world was so fucking humbling to me. I, I, I walked away from that exchange so altered, you know, to think of what his world is compared to mine, you know, with my apartment and my car and my fucking clothes and my clean socks, <laughs> you know. And meanwhile, this guy doesn't have any socks, right, you know right, what I mean? Right. It's like. Or they don't match. <laughs> yeah, or he looks like he has socks on, yeah, but he's yeah, not wearing socks. Or he needs some new socks. He's wearing <laughs> socks, but let's get him a pair. I had a friend. She used to um, make uh, little care bags, and uh, because she realized, like a lot of homeless people, you know, they need food and money, but what they really need are like socks, underwear, toiletries, toothbrush, floss, things like that. So she would make these little care kits and just go around and give them to them. And I was like, that makes so much more sense, and I think that is so much more valuable than just giving them money because usually they're going to buy it for either food or, you know, uh, other things. Um, but, uh, but the necessities is what they really need to groom themselves and, yeah. and to clean up and things like that. 
and underwear, they don't do, right. the Salvation Army doesn't do socks or underwear. They don't? They don't. Oh, they can't, I never they thought can't, about legally, that. Legally, they can't take them. Oh. So that's why, like, oh. I used to have, like, you know, I used to keep, like, uh, when, I w- when I worked, uh, when I ha- was a Costco member, I'd buy those socks, you know. And if you have those in your car, you can always give a pair of socks out to somebody who's asking for money. You know, there's, there's homeless guys on my street that I see, you know, tw- two, two or three times a week, you know. Wow. They're always going to need socks. Always. You know? I never knew that. Um, I always feel like people who are listening to the podcast, there's, there's always one person who might be on a precipice of uh, taking their life. Uh, before you kill yourself, what would you say to that person? I think that uh, do anything you can to step away from this idea that this is a solution. Like a solution, ending something is not a solution. You know what I mean? It's not, it's, it's really only gonna get better if you fight against that and stay here. If you do what you can to reach out, let somebody know, make yourself feel better enough to stay here. Because it's an illusion to think that, you know, that you're going to solve it just by by cutting it out. You know, it's an illusion. Eric Hahn, thank you so much for being on this podcast. It was funny. It was uh, enlightening. I learned a lot. Um, and where can people find you on social media? Do you have a website? Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, at uh, what is my Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> you're, apparently, you're not on Twitter a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm Eric on Comedy on Instagram, and so okay. I've I've been gramming like the kids. Like I've been I've been doing a lot of Instagram stuff. And then if if you look for me on uh, on Twitter, it's at Han Eric. At Han Eric. Uh, I'll link to both of those because Eric is E R I C, right? Yes. All right. Um, at, and then Han is H A H N. Yeah. So if you if you're looking for him on Instagram, it's Eric E R I C H A H N comedy, with Instagram, and then on Twitter at Han Eric. As the helicopter uh, is probably looking for one of us, hovers above head. Um, and, you know, my Instagram is leoflowers2000. Uh, and then there's also a Before You Kill Yourself uh, profile on Instagram. So go check that out where we're just putting up the podcast episodes. Um, and then we also have a Before You Kill Yourself Facebook group. So check that out also. Uh, and I just want to thank you guys once again and remind you that this podcast is not a substitute for you going to uh, group therapy, individual therapy, for you calling the 800 suicide number, for you reaching out and getting uh, help uh, one-on-one, in person, or over the phone. Call someone, call anyone. Um, your, your story is 
is valuable, your life is important, and uh, we can find we can find a way together. Uh, and as usual, thank you for listening and downloading, and really thank you for sharing. That is uh, so big. I see the numbers going up. We have listeners in Canada, the Netherlands, Finland, um, uh, Denmark. Uh, I say Canada already? I think so. Uh, and uh, Norway, uh, Thailand. Mm. Thank you guys uh, all for, for listening in Brazil. Thank you for all listening in, and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you.